Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Most of us are heeding the call to stay at home as much as possible, and some of us have seen it as an opportunity to learn new things. So we've decided to invite our favorite word mavens, the brother and sister team of Catherine and Ross Petrus, back to our show, by phone, of course, to talk about language usage and pronunciation. Their latest book is called Awkward, spelled A-W-K-W-O-R-D, Awkward Moments, A Lively Guide to the 100 Tone Terms Smart People Should Know. Like their other books on language, that doesn't mean what you think it means, the 150 most commonly misused words in their tangled histories, and, and the other one, You're Saying It Wrong, A Pronunciation Guide to the 150 Most Commonly Mispronounced Words and Their Tangled Histories of Misuse. This one is published by 10 Speed Press. They also have a podcast called You're Saying It Wrong, and I'm pleased to welcome Catherine and Ross Petrus back to our show to help us all sound a bit smarter. Hi. Hi, Leonard. Hey, Leonard. It's great to see, see you, talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well... I hope you're keeping yourself safe. We oh, we're, are... we're, we're both isolated. <laughs> this new book concentrates on words that most of us have heard or seen in print, but may not be completely sure of their exact meanings or how to use them correctly. How did you come up with the list? Um, it's complicated. I, I could say it's scientific, but it's quasi-scientific. We looked at a lot of lists that um, Merriam-Webster... The New York Times used to have a list of most looked up words in the uh, mid-2000s. The Washington Post had several people complaining about various words they used in the paper that they felt were, were too complex. So it's basically an amalgam of many different lists. And it's oh. also ones that we wondered about, I've got to admit. There's a few in there that were just ours. <laughs> that you wanted to learn more about yourself? Precisely. You begin each discussion of uh, the word and uh, that you're looking at with an example of how it's been used, usually incorrectly. Oh, in this case, we use them correctly because the, our point with this book really was not that they're being misused, but they're being used correctly, and we don't have any idea what they're what they're talking about. We've been hearing one of the words in this book existential quite a lot recently in the context of existential threat whether from coronavirus or climate change, does it mean a literal threat to our very existence? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the last part. I was wondering whether existential threat means a literal threat to our very existence. Uh, it can, actually, and that's very good, because a lot of people hear existential and they think of Sartre or somebody sitting at a cafe with a black beret and a cigarette, <laughs> drinking coffee and bemoaning the fate of the world, which it kind of is, but technically existential is exactly what you said. It is something that um, is about existence. It, it's, it's, it's concerned with existence. It's right there in the word. I just think a lot of us leap immediately to the philosophical as opposed to the to the very, very strict meaning. Although, I mean, the philo philosophy, it relates to, it's called existentialism, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it, it is sort of a depressing philosophy that we have free will and are responsible for our lives. But the tendency is 
that life doesn't have too much meaning beyond what we bring into it, which I'm not sure I like right now. So. Well, it seems like a lot of work, too, which is always what bothered me. You know? I'm too lazy, I think, to be a real existentialist. <laughs> in, in a previous book, you wrote about the difference between pandemic and epidemic. Don't they both mean widespread outbreaks of disease? They do, but there is a difference in terms of the, how widespread they are. Epidemic tends to be somewhat more confined than pandemic. Pandemic comes from the Greek pan, meaning all, and demos, meaning people, and it basically affects pretty much a large section of the world or a large section of, of several continents. Epidemics can be local or more local. The lo more local is outbreak. That's the lowest that tends to be used as the lowest. But we've been talking and reading about with uh, the WHO, who they tend now to prefer, even though they did call this a pandemic, they tend to prefer um, sort of more classified uh, terminology. Kath, you oh, it's a FIEC. I, I don't know if it's how it's pronounced. It's, it's P-H-E-I-C. Um, what does that stand for? I don't even remember now. Uh, public Health. What was it? A Public Health Emergency of International Concern. That's it. Wow. And they had preferred that to pandemic. And, in fact, Ross and I did a podcast about this and blithely were saying how they, who refuses to use the term pandemic anymore. And, of course, a day before the, pande uh, before the, uh, the, before the podcast ran, they, they announced it was a pandemic. So that's how things changed so quickly. But, yeah, as Ross said, it's just a question of, 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 uh, of, of spread, really. An epidemic is a smaller version, so does, right? So does yeah. an outbreak... Does an outbreak start out as an epidemic and then become a pandemic when it reaches a certain point? Again, these, these terms tend to be used unscientifically. Outbreak, uh, I've read outbreak as being used for or pandemic, epidemic, et cetera. I've also read, like in our book, we had used, talked to another scientist, that outbreak is a local uh, rise in some sort of infectious disease, and then it becomes an epidemic, and from there, an, a pandemic. Um, I kind of now prefer what the U.S. CDC does, and they have like uh, like a severity index with, with these various things. Like, for example, for pandemic, a Category 1 has a death rate of 0.1%. Category 5 is 2% and over, like the Spanish flu. And I think that we have to be careful with these loaded terms. I mean, and also to some degree, for example, a pandemic doesn't necessarily mean how virulent a disease is. It just means how widespread it is, mm -hmm. although it's really used now more for a virulent widespread disease. But it's kind of tricky. That's why public it's health... It's kind of become like a loaded term, though, to me. Don't yeah. you think? So, but also interesting... Yeah, I think so, definitely. But it's also interesting because you can't... Like, you could say there's an epidemic of... Uh, you can use epidemic in a non-medical sense. There's an epidemic of grammar misusers in the world. But you don't say a pandemic of grammar misusers in the world, do you? No. Well, no. pandemic, as you point out, has a pan, which means uh, covers a lot. But if you look at the word, the first three letters and the last two letters are panic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually very clever. I never noticed that. The oh, pandemic then you panic. Epidemic's epic, right? <laughs> Another word we've been hearing a lot recently is epicenter, which is normally used to indicate the center of an earthquake. But now New York is being called the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak in the United States because 
the largest concentration of cases is here at the moment. Is this a correct use of the word? Well, this gets sort of tricky. I mean, it really is. It can be used that way. Technically, and this is being really persnickety, epi come, epicenter comes from a Greek, the Greek, the uh, prefix epi is a Greek word meaning on or over. And it usually used to refer to mostly non-figuratively to earthquakes. And an epicenter of an earthquake is the center of an earthquake. Well, an earthquake is way down below. It doesn't happen right on the top of the ground. So in a way, it's correct to say epicenter for something above what's happening below. So in a way, you could just say simply... No, but, but since like the early 1900s, they started using it figuratively to just mean the center of activity or, you know, where the disturbance was the strongest or... or uh, what's the word I'm looking for, came out of. <laughs> That's not the right way to put it, but you know what I mean. So I, I think you can use it that way. Well, you can. Even We're though the virus didn't start here? Yeah, because it's now the center of activity. Yeah. It's, it's, it doesn't have to be the genesis uh, in epicenter. Epicenter can now be um, where, where most of the impact is or where things are generating from now. And I would argue that New York is the epicenter of... of COVID-19 activity currently in the United States. I mean, it started here in Seattle, where I am, um, but we've ceded that um, that un unfortunate distinction to you guys. Yeah, and then we're going to probably get it pretty soon in Toronto, too. Hey, speaking of which, I have a question to ask both of you. A lot of us are in quarantine. Do either of you know the origins of the word quarantine? I think it's sort of interesting. That's not in your book, is it? No. no. <laughs> if it were, I would be able to answer. I have no <laughs> idea, Ross. <laughs> yes, letter, do you know? No. Okay. This I is, just know the me, word. Well, first of all, let's think it out. Quarantine, it sounds a lot like quarter or something like that, doesn't it? So we have four in there in the word. And okay. it actually comes from Italian quaranta. I can't pronounce Italian very well. Quaranta giorni, which is, means 40 days. And quarenta is 40 in Italian from the Latin quadradinquinta, which is related to obviously four. And it was an old Venetian policy during the plague years. They would keep ships waiting off port for 40 days to assume that no uh, virus hmm. was, or bacteria or whatever was aboard and the people were safe to, uh, to unload. Well, that's sort of interesting. I had no idea. Do you guys know where influenza came from, since we've talked about, like, other disease things? Because that's one that I love. Well, my mother used to say, you open the window and influenza. <laughs> Mom was pretty clever. <laughs> no, it comes from this. the Latin influentia, which means to flow into. And it came because they thought that there was a fluid given off by the stars that affected humans. So the influenza was uh, a disease that they thought was influenced by stars. So Leonard's mom, in a way, was right, though, with the window. Yeah, thing, right? she was. Well, if it was nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, let, let, let me get back to my uh, what I was thinking here. Uh, while we're at it, maybe we should explain where the name COVID-19 comes from talking with numbers, in, uh, an abbreviation of coronavirus, but uh, where where did the D come from, and, and what does the 19 refer to? Hey, the co, co obviously comes from corona, 
Mm. The V comes from virus. I didn't really realize this until it actually happened. The D refers to disease, and the uh, 19 refers to 2019 when it first became uh, evident. Uh, so it's a combination, a technical combination. It's funny with these sort of technically words, though. I thought that the origin was much more sort of interesting, you know, referring to, like, coronavirus has a covid whatever, some sort of, you know, some weird sort of uh, viral particle or something. But it's just a simple combination of various terms. Yeah, it's a straightforward the, acronym, really. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and I thought... Did they do with that with other diseases? Pardon me? Have they done that with other diseases? Well, well SARS... Well, yeah. Yeah, but I, SARS didn't SARS have severe, 18 or 17. Or... Yeah, but they don't, um, have, they don't have the date on those. This is where yeah. you get like I mean, this is where languages get weird because they don't have the date on SARS or MERS at all. No, you're so right. MERS was technically MERS is M E R S C O V, but they don't have any. And SARS is S A R S C O V two. Well, I, I, I would have assumed I, those. I would assume that they put the year in, though, because there are many types of, of coronaviruses. So this, uh, this is this specific. It's not just, a, you know, coronavirus isn't one thing, this. It's, this is specifically the 2019 one. So maybe that's why, to, 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 know, to distinguish is, from. But MERS is a coronavirus, too. Mm. It was a coronavirus. But it doesn't have the, the, the date acronym. I wonder if they're going to be sort of changing that. One thing that was sort of interesting when we were doing a podcast on pandemic, et cetera, was the fluidity of uh, terminology for all of these viruses. I, I can see now why scientists like numbers, because language doesn't seem to be precise enough in many cases. Mm-hmm. My yeah, guess so like, first... on, should I, should I do an idea, or do you want to finish your thought, Catherine? Oh, it, it, I was just going to say that it's, it's sort of boring, but <laughs> we'll finish it. Because I was going to say, first, um, so firstly, the virus was called um, uh, the, 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 wait, the disease is SARS-CoV, right, for the coronavirus. Right. Mm. And that, then the coronavirus, the, the COVID-19, is the virus that causes the disease, right? Right. Yeah, I get confused. It's, again, we go back to this the terminology. You're right. MERS is a disease. Kathy is right. So the virus mm. is something different, I guess, in that case. Mm. I don't know enough about this. I'm not a scientist. I never shall be. No, nor I. One of the words that you write about, neologism, refers to new words added to the language. So are we seeing more new words in times like these when we're experiencing unprecedented events like a pandemic? That's a really um, interesting question. I'm sorry, Ross, go ahead. I cut you off. I think it is too. I don't. I can't really. I think we are getting some like COVID nineteen is obviously a new word now to the language. Hmm. Um, I don't. And what I'm happens not, in, if it comes again in nineteen in twenty twenty two? Do we call it COVID twenty two or we still give call it nineteen? Oh, we'll call it twenty two. That's a really good. It's a new day. Well, with the mutated now, if it's the same disease, if it's the same virus, yeah. it would still be. I would think it would have to still be nineteen because that's what it was. Because it's 2020 virus, now when we're calling it COVID-19. Yeah. Although viruses do tend to mutate. They tend to mutate, actually, fortunately, down in, in virulence. They tend to get less and less virulent. But maybe you're right. Maybe it would be called, um, or would it be a different, I don't know. I don't know enough about how viruses are are, are calculated to know if it, it would be or not. That's an interesting question, though. 
But I, we I'm are thinking with that... Ross Petrus and Catherine Petrus, their latest book is Awkward Moments, A-W-K-W-O-R-D, A Lively Guide to the 100 Terms Smart People Should Know. And this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. You were saying something, Catherine? Um, I was just going to say, I would assume that they would keep it as COVID-19 at this point, even, I mean, unless it was such a dramatic mutation that it's a completely different thing. But I would just think we know it is such now. I think it would get confusing if you go, you know, like we don't call the flu different things every year, and mm. they're different strains of the flu, right? Yeah. Like, Although I think one thing, one point that I think we should make with these new words that are being coined right now, um, in our book we describe it, like we, there are three different kinds of, uh, of this. First, we have unstables. These are recently coined words that haven't really yet caught on. Then they spread, but they're still not considered regular words. They tend not to be in the dictionaries yet. And then there are what are called stables. And these are words that are stable and they're used like normal, regular words. And we had like words like we mentioned freelance, which was coined by Sir Walter Scott, chortle, which Lewis Carroll introduced the language in the last centuries, and doormat, which Charles Dickens introduced in the uh, 1800s. And all of those. More recently, you've got Brexit and fake news, which are completely uh. in the language now. And a while ago, we didn't know what they were. Right. And those are what I would call stables. They're in the language right now. But things also disappear, too. We, on one of our podcasts, we were talking about the word quizzling, and people uh -huh. of a certain age realized that Vidkud Quizzling was a uh, Norwegian Nazi, and he was seen as a traitor to, uh, to uh, Norway. And the word quizzling entered into the language, and it was in English for years, signifying someone who's a traitor. But then we went around the campus at U of T and in U of Washington, and most young people have no idea what quizzling means. That word was a stable, and now it's disappearing. I disagree slightly, Russ. I thought that we're starting to see more of it lately again. Have we? This is it. Let's check the Ngram viewer and see. I thought, because I, I've, I've run across Quisling just in the course of reading stuff, and I thought it was because, we're, you know, with politics and everything, you're getting more heated uh, rhetoric, and I've seen Quisling appear. Actually, that's interesting, because I'm looking right now, and it's down. For the 2000s. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> I don't like your source. <laughs> I, I I'm going by anecdotal evidence. <laughs> Me. 2009, and it seems down. What about you, Leonard? Have you heard quizzling used or seen I haven't it heard used? it recently, but of course I know what it means. Yeah. I, I would use it under certain circumstances, but right now I can't think of a quizzling situation unless Donald Trump considers. Uh, one of his uh, party members who goes against him to be a Quisling. Mm -hmm. But I don't think Donald Trump would know the words, so... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the words in this new book are borrowed from Latin. Are they some of the most misunderstood words out there? I would definitely say yes. Um, in fact, uh, this is where I've got to admit, Ross uh, knows Latin, I do not. So um, this is a case where he and I sometimes disagreed on what should go in, because he'd be, of course, you know, you know, of course, everyone knows that. And I'd have to say, well, I don't. Quotidian. Yeah. That's a, that's a Latin-based word. I had no idea what quotidian meant, and I've seen it appear so often. And I just never thought of it. Let me go on well, my way. When my father went to school, everybody had to study Latin. That's no mm -hmm. longer, a, it's no longer a required course. 
Mm-mm. It's true. And it's unfortunate because I think if you know Latin, and I don't, it would make life a lot simpler because so much, if, if, even if they're not a, a, a direct Latin phrase that we use, like quid pro quo, which I think everybody knows what it means now. Only now. But, yeah, really. I mean, you couldn't escape that one. But I do think that just knowing Latin makes life a lot simpler because it's the root of so many words. But, um, yeah, no, most of us don't know them. Well, I, as I said, quotidian, we had, what, quid pro quo, and there's sui generis is another one that I, yeah. I, you run across fairly often, especially people who are trying desperately to sound really bright and intelligent. And, um, you know, you're great on wash like me, go what? So. But that said, though, I think in those cases, like quotidian, you know, basically, why don't you just say every day or commonplace? I don't. Sometimes these words are chucked in. I, I sort of agree with George Orwell, who wrote years ago about how people chuck in these Latinate words and try to sound impressive. And Kathy just mentioned that with Sweet Generous. In both cases, I don't really think they're that necessary. I, I kind of mm-hmm. like a more lean Hemingway style of writing, I think. I don't know. What do you guys think on that? I'm just not that Well, I think that quid pro quo really does uh, describe something uh, that uh, would be hard to describe in another way. On the other hand, don't those impeachment hearings seem like they happened 100 years ago? It's true. It's true. It seems like antiquated. It's something like the good old days, (laughs) but all we worried about was impeachment, you know? Quid pro quo I'll agree with. I think that's a good word. It's a a useful word, or useful series of words, actually. But I don't think quotidian... I like QED, too. I like QED. I don't think quotidian is particularly useful. And sweet generous, I don't think, either. You mentioned sui generis. Uh, it's a fancy way of saying unique, isn't it? Or is it yeah, more complicated it. than that? You got it. That's exactly it. It comes from the Latin, and you know, and then ipse is uh, yeah. No, I mean it does mean unique. I'm sorry, I was I just looked at something else. Yeah, it means of its own kind, technically, and it and you're right. It just means something that's unlike something else, which is unique. But well, I, by I the way, am I being too picky because I cringe when people say it's very unique? <laughs> You're not I, that being is too picky. Yes. <laughs> You're among friends, Leonard. <laughs> <laughs> that's, but there's another one that's like that. I was just thinking, what's the? there's another one. You go very unique or the most unique. But there's no. another word that people do that with, and I can't think what it is now. It's going to drive me crazy. I'll, I'll think of it tomorrow morning, probably. Now, you mentioned prima facie. It sounds like a legal term, uh, and I assume that uh, many of these Latin terms wind up in being used in legal ways, but is it ever used in ordinary speech? Yeah, in fact... Go on, Kat. Oh, I was going to say, the example we have in there is, um, is from the Baltimore Sun, and it just says, what rankles me is the underlying implication that snobbery is prima facie a bad thing. Okay, maybe it is, but it's also unavoidable and fun. That prima facie is, is completely unnecessary, but there it is, and it's just a regular sentence. Because they could have said it's on its face. Yeah, <laughs> actually it means first face. It was actually originally used in, in English as prime face or first face. It was not prima facie in the Latin came in later. The original use was in English prime face, and then they decided Latin sounded better for some for some reason in the seventeen hundreds, <laughs> and it switched over to prima facie, which I think is interesting. But I want to add one more thing. I went into a website that had people using various languages, various words, and a lot of lecturers they had tapes of them actually saying prima facie in in speeches or talks. 
So apparently it is used to some degree in language, I mean, spoken language. When I was a kid, I thought it was linked to Louis Prima. <laughs> <laughs> that should have been the name of one of his albums. I would have loved that. <laughs> Good, I like that. What about ad hominem? Uh, translated from the Latin, it means to a person. How has it come to refer to a, a form of personal attack? That's an interesting one. That's another one that you're seeing more and more often. Um, it's, it refers to conducting an argument by attacking or criticizing the person that you're, being, that you're arguing with, as opposed to the argument itself, the thing that's being argued about. So that's where the person gets in. But it, initially, it really just meant playing on uh, the emotions of your audience. It was, it was more of like a, sta like a stage device or a debate device. And the person, the hominin in that, meant the audience, not the person with whom you're arguing. But that's changed a lot. Um, one thing we do mention well, in the book write that... you that it entered the English language in the 1500s. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's an old one. I but guess a bunch of these... The thing that fascinated me, we found in doing it, because, um, you know, we, we do search to see, you know, where the term is being used, because we're trying to track usage of it, obviously. And we found ad feminum a fair amount lately. Mm. People saying they wanted to use that because ad hominem was too gender specific because it referred to a man. And I initially did think that ad feminum must be like a new term, and that's not. It first appeared in print back in the 1800s, but ad hominem is not gender centric. It, it's not oh. man you're talking about. It means person there. Yeah, homo can be homo, which is in the uh, that's the noun. Homo hominem is the accusative. It can mean man or person in, in a general sense. In Latin, it's used essentially as meaning just person. You would say we're, V-I-R, for man in Latin usually in, this, in, in these cases. So it's not yeah, we, really, ad hominem can be an attack against, can mean against some woman speaking as well as a man. Well, we don't say homo sapien, we don't say femo sapien when we're talking about our ancestors. No, we don't. I suppose we could. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, since a woman probably was the first human. Then there's sub rosa, which sounds like it should mean under the rose. What does it, it mean, does and, mean exactly and how that. can we use it in speaking? Well, the, in Roman times, um, rose was sig signified secrecy, and people would um, actually put roses, uh, would paint roses above their, um, in the dining area, and that would mean that everything that's said here remains amongst us only. It's under the rose, quite literally. But the uh, Romans didn't use the word. The, uh, it was somehow it came in, no one really knows why, but it came into usage in Germany and the Netherlands. And there it was in the vernacular, under the rose, unter rosen or whatever. And then from there it came into English to mean, again, um, something that's going to be secret. There are a lot of other words you can use instead of sub rosa, though, to mean the same thing like secret. A nice, simple word. Yes. Now, you mentioned sine qua non. I actually you use give... it sometimes in speech. I can't help it. I like how it sounds, too. <laughs> I don't know why, but I do. Sine qua non, uh, you give us an example that in the 1970s, Eggs Benedict became the sine qua non of brunch dishes. So is it a synonym for quintessential, which is also in your book? Not quite. It's it's close, but not quite. It, it 
it really means something essential or indispensable. So it was like in the case of Eggs Benedict, it's like if you didn't have Eggs Benedict at your brunch, it wasn't brunch. Whereas quintessential, this is where it gets like, I'm going to start screaming in a second. Quintessential is more like absolute, well, wait a second now. Quintessential is, how would you explain quintessential versus, um, versus that? Quintessential is, is well, qu- the most important is, is part, the so it's sort of the same. So you could say quint, so you could say eggs benedict is a sine qua non for brunch, and it represents the quintessential aspect of brunch. In that sense, it defines brunch as the ultimate food for brunch. And the other, I need a mimosa now. This is confusing uh. me. <laughs> I'd say uh, I, there is a subtle difference. Quintessential is the ideal or the perfect, the super mm. perfect. Mm. I mean, the most unique, shall we say? But um, <laughs> deliberately said, I realize that. Whereas sine qua non means it's, it's an essential part of something. I can't. They're yeah, very, I agree. It's indispensable versus the... Versus representing the essence of something. Correct. Okay, yeah, that's well put. Does quintessential have anything to do with the number five? Because it is quint, like quintet, quintuplets. Yes, it does. That's an interesting one because it means literally the fifth, uh, the fifth essence or the fifth essential. And that comes from very long, a very long time ago when um, people thought the world, the universe, was made up of five basic elements, fire, earth, mm. air, water, and they're a very weird, odd thing called the fifth element. And the Latins thought of the fifth element as something like sort of ineffable, magical. All these alchemists were trying to uh, boil down or extract out this elusive fifth element, which may make you immortal, may make everything better and basically people started identifying the fifth essence with gold and we mentioned in the book they started drinking uh powdered gold which is not particularly good for your kidneys but they thought this essence would would make them live forever it didn't but it did make the word live at least up to our time as something ideal perfect etc like a gold drink but we advise sticking to orange juice when it comes to uh essential drinks the Latin word we have talked about in the past, but you haven't included in this book, is media. It's the plural of medium, but isn't it often being used in the singular, even in places like the New York Times? Oh, I definitely. absolutely. I That's one of those. Oh, go, go ahead, down. Ross. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, Captain, okay. your turn. That's one of those words that um, you have that with data and datum. Um, there, there are certain words, particularly those with Latin endings, that have become um, more often used theoretically or technically incorrectly, but, but to mean uh, the same thing as, as the, um, not to, to mean the singular as well as the plural. Yeah, I see nothing wrong with it, because it's now entered into the English language, so why not use it as, as we think of it? I think well, medium sounds really kind of sort of snooty, frankly. Really? The television medium? Yeah, television medium sounds okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's big of you, Ross. <laughs> no, when you think about it, that sounds fine, actually. I think, I'm I think there's a pl- time and place. What? I think television I know, medium sounds me. good, but when someone makes a real point, I think, of saying medium as opposed to media, you sort of want to, like, punch them in the snoot a little bit, Ooh. don't you? Oh, don't I do. Me. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> You're okay. You get a pass, Leonard, Okay. <laughs> 
In case you've been wondering, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. I say either, you say neither, and I say neither, either, either, and either, neither. Let's call the whole thing off. Yes, you like potato, and I like potato. You like tomato, I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. But oh, if we call the whole thing off. We are back with Ross Petrus and Catherine Petrus, authors of, well, their latest book is called Awkward Moments, a lively guide to the 100 terms smart people should know. It's published by 10 Speed Press as uh, have their other books. Uh, you mentioned QED earlier, another phrase that we hear a lot. I know it's an abbreviation of a Latin phrase, that, um, but, I, but I had to look it up. Quad erat demonstrandum? What is that exactly? I'm sorry, Leonard. It uh, looked like we lost them. I'm going to try to get back, uh, try to get them back as soon as possible. We, we've lost our... Our guest? Yeah, we lost him off. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to get him back as soon as possible. Okay, Reggie. You want to play a little more of that music? Sure, why not? We'll do that. I mean, that's Elephant's Fiddle and Louis Armstrong. You can't go wrong. You can't go wrong, and we're going to go back to that music right about now, so stay tuned for that. You say either. I say either. You say neither, and I say neither, either, either, and either, neither. Let's call the whole thing off. Yes, you like potato, and I like potato. You like tomato, I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. But oh. If we call the whole thing off, then we must part. And oh, if we ever part, then that might break my heart. So if you like pajamas, I like pajamas. I'll wear pajamas, give up pajamas. For we know we need each other, so we better call the calling off, off. You say laughter and I say laughter. You say after and I say after. Laughter, laughter, after, after. Let's call the whole thing off. You like vanilla and I like vanilla. Louie, I'm showing an elephant show. Let's call the whole thing off. I, uh, think it's one of the wittiest songs ever written but i never heard anybody say potato we're back with ross petrus and Catherine petrus their latest book awkward moments a lively guide to the 100 terms smart people should know this is leonard lopate at large on wbai new york 99.5 fm we may i was talking about qed when we lost you uh, it's another phrase we hear a lot, uh, an abbreviation, a Latin phrase, quad erat demonstrandum. 
Very well mm. said. What does that mean? That and how do you use it in ordinary speech? Well, I think you use it triumphantly after you've proved something. And it, was, it means literally in Latin that which was to be uh, demonstrated or proved. Or proven. But it was Euclid who came up with it, who was Greek. I just want to point that out as a Greek-American. <laughs> he did not say it in Latin. He said it in Greek. We have a number of Greek words here. Translated it from the Greek into the Latin. So, mm. yes, Kathy is correct, though. Well, another word, syllogism, seems to be related uh, because it has to do with proving an argument, and that comes from Aristotle. Yes. Another Greek. Yeah. <laughs> Go Greeks. <laughs> yeah, that one, what, it's, it's, um, I, I took logic, and I did terribly in it in college, but um, it's, it's a formal argument or claim. It's deductive reasoning. You have two propositions, a major proposition, a minor proposition, that share a common term, and that leads to the third proposition. That's a syllogism. And the classic one we put in the book was, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That's a syllogism. Mm. It's very nice and neat. But but people sort of and take obvious. it badly. <laughs> you group two other words that sound similar to syllogism, solecism and solipsism. Are they oh. related? Oh, those killed us. We have a great quote that just, that in a way, it sort of partly triggered the book, and it's from the New Yorker. And the line is, solecism slipped into solipsism, into full-blown narcissism, which or narcissistic project, which just killed us, because I don't, I vaguely knew solipsism, but not that well. What about you, Kat? Did you know it or not? Um, I knew solipsism, <laughs> but not solipsism. So between the two of us, we could have figured out the sentence had we sat down. <laughs> Well, isn't solicism an error or a faux pas it's while solipsism has something to do yes, with exactly. being self-centered? And it's a simple word. It just means a mistake or that's it. And it comes from the ancient Greek, and it, there was a colony called Soloi, and the ancient Athenians said the Soloians or the Solicisms, Solix, spoke terrible Greek, and therefore they <laughs> made a mistake with their Greek, and then it easily came into the English language as a mistake. Now Kathy's going to do the toughie. Solipsism. Here we go again. It's philosophy. Philosophy is like responsible for so many words that make you just want to hit your head against the wall. It 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 means that um, nothing. How do you? Okay, nothing. Ex, it's it's you. You can't be sure. Um, you know that you exist, but you can't be sure about anything else but your own existence. So theoretically, it's like you exist, but you don't you don't know if anything else or anyone else exists as well. <laughs> it's, sort of and, and, uh, it's sort of ultimate existentialism, really, in a way. It is actually because I have we had um, the, uh, uh, an ancient Greek philosopher summed it up ironically as one: nothing exists; two: even if something does exist, you can't know anything about it; and three: even if you do know something, you can't tell anyone else about it. Which <laughs> <So it's just, laughs> makes you just one. want to scream. I do, at least. It sounds like we could name a, a, a political party after it. Which is alone, and ipsy, which is self. So it literally, I mean, you can see it literally means alone self, which goes back to Kathy's depressing hmm. Greek philosopher who summed it up. A word from the Greek that's constantly misused but not in your book is podium, which means a platform that raises something to a short distance above its surroundings. And nowadays it seems to 
replace the word lectern as uh, the, 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 the place where that speakers step up to. Yes, we had that in a previous book, and yeah. it was sort of a pet peeve of mine, but I don't think it really matters too much anymore. But podium, again, comes from, uh, well, it comes actually via Latin through the Greek. Uh, I mean, uh, it means Greek word for foot is podion, mm -hmm. so, which, is, which is a diminutive pus foot, so therefore in Latin ped foot. So, yes, it means something that you're standing on. And, uh, like, we have people pounding the podium. That literally means they're on their hands and knees banging on the floor, which doesn't really work. But now it's come to being. But that reminds me of medium, like you were saying, medium being used now, uh, um, uh, media being used in the place of medium. And I think you're absolutely right. You see podium now more often used than lectern. It's rare, I think, that you see lectern. I mean, well, I, I, think, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen lectern. Uh, I haven't seen lectern much in, in recent times. No. And, I yeah. use it. You would, of course. That's why we love you. But now my question is, have you guys ever seen podia used, which would be the, the plural? I don't think I've ever seen podia. Have you? Never. Although we would see podia during the debates, wouldn't we? We would, but would we see the word podia? Let's not be nitpicking here, splitting <laughs> no, hairs. I mean, I mean all, when during the debates, each one of the debaters stood on a podium. Podium. Correct. So we saw a, a, an array of podia. We did. I mean, Webster says you can say podiums or podia. I would probably say podiums. What, you, what would you say? You, you would say uh, podia? What? I would say podiums. I would, I would say, say podiums. podiums as well. Because podia just sounds podia. Like ridiculous. Yes, yes. It almost sounds like a foot disease, like some, doesn't it slightly? Like the heartbreak of podia or something? Well, you also yeah. want people to understand what you're saying, and I think if you said podia, people would say, huh? Yeah. Well, that goes back into which Ross and I had in uh, another of our books, the whole, um, when we're talking about um, uh, uh, plurals, it's the whole octopus plural conundrum. Oh, that like, was interesting. Because most, most people think it's octopi, right? Yes. Octopuses or octopi. Technically, it should be octopodes. That's what no one would say. But it comes well, from Well, if Greek. you said you that, I think you deserve anything that happens to you. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anybody say octopodi. Um, no, you've also have a I number. Have, we would talk about Greek and Roman and Latin, but you have a number of words that come from French, like ennui, louche, and, and sousante. Uh, there are there certain words that just by using them we take on the attitudes of the culture, like the phrase "je ne sais quoi," which seems to encapsulate the <laughs> entire idea of Frenchness. <laughs> and what you could say it's the quintessential French feeling when you say, "I know I'm one of those people." Ross speaks French. I do not, and I'm one of those people who gets embarrassed um, using French phrases or French words because. I either overdo the French pronunciation, like je ne sais quoi, or I or say it with a New York accent, like je ne sais quoi, which doesn't sound quite right. My favorites, though, are the German words, I've got to admit. Those are the yeah. ones that I, I, I get into, like Sturm und Drang. Just you, it just makes you feel sort of Germanic and tough, doesn't it? It does. I and like zeitgeist. They, they, I they, they convey some kind of German sensibility, don't they? Absolutely. Well, Kathy said they have German precision in putting German precision into a language, which I think is correct, because they have a lot of words that you can't really define or
were used in English as a one-word phrase, like schadenfreude, I think is a great word. I mean, try to think of an English equivalent to schadenfreude that works. Can, you, can either of you think of one? I mean, you're enjoying someone else's discomfort, but that's a long sense of, uh, mm. that's a long word. Mm-hmm. And some well, of the other German words you have in the book, Bildungsroman, Doppelganger, Realpolitik, Weltschmerz, they all uh, are one word that would have to be translated by a number of words. Yes. The Germans mash together several words to make a nice, long very evocative word. We don't do that as much in English as the Germans do in German. And well, one that I is, think is a... Go on about Doppelganger. I was just going to talk about Hamsters in a second. Now, Doppelganger, well, must love... be, Doppelganger must be common enough that my computer put the, uh, the two, the, what is that, umlauts, the, the two dots over the A automatically when I typed it. Wow. Mine didn't. I'm upset. I don't think mine does either. Well, I was surprised. (laughs) I'm pleased. (laughs) One was, yeah, because we were saying that, you know, German words are often those compound words, as Ross was saying. And one that has recently been in the news, um, I never had run across before. Ross knows it because he, like, knows Civil War stuff, is Hamsterkalfa. Oh, I've never heard of it. And what does that mean? Ross, you want to explain it? It was interesting because, Kathy, I, I read a lot of books on World War II and the Holocaust and stuff, and Hamsterkaufe came from – it's a German word meaning a hamster buyer and it's someone who hoards, who hoards food. And it was first really came into prominence in Germany during the uh, bombing campaigns by the Allies. And there were posters – I showed Kathy a couple of posters from online of a, a hamster – a woman who has a hamster face – with stuffed cheeks, you know, hamsters shove food into their cheeks, and the idea was a hoarder, and it, it's a really evocative. Or a panic hoarder. buyer. Panic buyer, yes. Panic buyer is a better term, yes. Yeah, um, it's really more of a panic buyer, which we're seeing now with the supermarkets getting, you know, stripped of toilet paper. Yes. Now, do you think that certain languages like French and Brazilian Portuguese have a certain softness, while German is more hard-edged? Uh, does that somehow relate to the idea of a national identity? That's an interesting question. I kind of think so. I mean, I do think that language, language I wouldn't say language is destiny, but I think language mirrors um, uh, the zeitgeist, if you will, I, 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 or, or, or certainly like the, 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 the feel of a place. I think so. I mean, they've done all those surveys on what do people find are the the most attractive accents, and I think French almost always uh, leads the pack, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know, though. The only problem is I had a German girlfriend once, and she spoke a very soft German, which sounded really pretty. And then I, I had a, a, a woman who I dated a woman who spoke Yiddish, which is a sort of German dialect in a way, and her Yiddish sounded more kind of like New York-y. So... I don't know. I think language can also, I mean, it, it's a really complex question. I'm not really sure you're determined by grammar or by sound particularly. I think French does sound sort of sexy, but um, I don't know. There like, are certainly you, unsexy French people. <laughs> no, but I think you're making an important point here if, when I think about how the, the English language, the American English language, is spoken in different parts of this country. Uh, you... Uh, sometimes I find it hard to understand how 
a certain vowel came to be pronounced in a certain way in the South, let's say. But mm -hmm. uh, even things like New York say Nevada and uh, other people in the country say Nevada, Florida, Nevada. Florida. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, no, that we do have different accents as well, different sounds from the same language. And interestingly enough, though, I think that language distinctions can be sort of uh, dangerous, too. I think New Yorkers have more of a pro and Southerners have a problem sometimes projecting to the rest of the country because of specific uh, accents. I don't know. To some degree, I think that's a pro that can be a problem. I remember it was in the Foreign Service years ago. We had a guy who was brilliant, but he had like a very heavy Southern accent, like, how hey, you going, you know, like that sort of thing. And I think it it did affect his it did affect him. I think I think he tried to change his accent, a la Henry Higgins and you know My Fair Lady or something. Well, it's the whole thing, like because they say that we're losing some of those distinctions with TV and especially news anchors. What what you wanted was what was called a non a non accent, which was California. Cal lots of parts of California. They said that was the perfect accent because it wasn't distinguishable. It wasn't it, did, it wasn't identifiable with the place. And it's kind of like Brits with uh, the BBC accent versus you know your your local your local accents. So I think there is that temptation to try to blur, and I think we are losing some of the differences, don't you think? I mean, I, I hear less and less, and I think it's because of television. You hear less and less of the distinctions overtly, I would argue. Oh, I would, too, because it used to fascinate us. We used to go down, our mother is from Georgia, and we'd visit family in Georgia periodically. And when we first went down, everyone looked at us oddly, and you would never hear anything but, like, either a deep coastal southern Georgia accent and then just recently we were visiting uh, our mom, and we went to that pancake house, and everyone had sort of a standard accent. Mm -hmm. and there, you would hear southern accents, but you'd also hear standard accents, and there was no real distinction, I didn't think, made between those who spoke one way and those who spoke the other, whereas when we were kids they would have made that distinction. You're not, you're Yankees, you're not from here, yeah. that sort of Yeah, thing. totally. Although there you still also, have words that are different. I mean, if you're not doing pronunciation, we still do different words for things, depending on region, yeah. which always fascinated me. And we were talking about the other day with shopping carts. I'm going to throw another one out. When you have a plural of people, what do you say? Because I say y'all, which I got from my mom. <laughs> no. and, and I say it, and my son says y'all, and he's in Ottawa. But what, what would you both use? Kathy, you don't I would say you. you. I say you or you guys. Okay, right. like so you're seeing you you see a bunch of friends and you're leaving. I would say see y'all later. You would say flat, you, you would say yeah. see you later. See you later. Yeah, later. I would say see yeah. you see you later too. Yeah. Okay, I, say, I would say see y'all later for mom. I never say y'all y'all. Yeah. My favorite is yins, which they use in Pittsburgh. We don't have much time left, and I want to get to a couple of the other things in your book. Um, fun terms like. Schrodinger's cat, which comes from quantum mechanics, and yet we find it, uh, it being used in everything from news articles to, to films. And then the, uh, there's another one that really struck me as odd, wabi-sabi, which sounds like the Japanese horseradish that you eat with sushi, but it comes from, a, it's a Japanese, but it has to do with handmade goods or embracing imperfection. Yeah, that was one of my favorites, actually. Um, Wabi Sabi started out, it was after a whole Shogun uh, era, and Japan was just, like, you know, ripped apart. 
and and it, they wanted to move from the courtly sort of things to more naturalistic. And yeah, Wabi Sabi really technically is finding beauty and imperfection and and transience as well. So it's things decay. So you'd have like a, a deliberately have a crack in something, and that's Wabi Sabi, mm. and it, it makes it more beautiful. I like it personally as I age to think of myself as having more Wabi Sabi. So I'm, I'm embracing this term. <laughs> and and the uh, Schrodinger's cat, uh, it just seems like such an odd thing to have come into uh, the, the public lexicon. That's one that I, I always liked because people think poor Schrodinger, it, you know, the whole thing is if you have a cat and um, it's supposed to, it was supposed to disprove, actually, it was supposed to prove the absurdity of quantum mm -hmm. mechanics because the point was that a cat could not be alive and dead at the same time, but theoretically, according to if you took quantum mechanics and blew it up to a larger point, that's what they were saying. But people now use it thinking that Schrodinger meant that a cat could be alive and dead <laughs> yes. at the same time. So he, for all of his trying to prove something or disprove something, he ended up being misinterpreted. Well, that leads but, and, me to one of the other terms in the book, mojuste, which seems to sum up your purpose in writing all of your books. Wow. That's a beautiful way to, it's a beautiful segue to use another word. Yes, that means the, the right word, literally in French. And that's been your goal all along. And well, uh, our, go ahead. Oh, no, our basic idea is we tend to be fairly liberal when it comes to words. The idea, the idea of using words is to communicate ideas. However, to use another word that we have in this book, protein, words are protein. They, they move, they, they change as time goes on. And I think in that sense, we also recognize that the meanings of words do change. But we live in the present, not in the future or in the past. So we try to get to like kind of a modified, limited grammatical mojus, where the word is sort of correct <laughs> right now. <laughs> the new book by Catherine and Ross Petrus is called Awkward. A-W-K-W-O-R-D, Awkward Moments, A Lively Guide to 100 Terms Smart People Should Know. It's from 10 Speed Press. And I thank you both so much for being with us, and I look forward to the next time you're on our show. Thank you so Great. much, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Barbara Kahn, who produced this segment. Uh, if you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out uh, Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. We'll continue to bring you live shows as long as it's possible without putting our staff at risk. But please stay safe out there. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when one of our regular contributors to the show, Bob Henley, We'll discuss the government response to the coronavirus and how the pandemic is affecting union workers. We'll see you then.